welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will your journey be, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I gave him a definite time. Nehemiah chapter 1 verses 5 and 6 New American Standard Bible Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Malachi Chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, New American Standard Bible. Hello, I'm Victoria Kay. Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. Today on Anchored by Truth, we're going to continue looking at some of the key scriptures in the Bible that help trace the grand story of creation, fall, and redemption as it proceeds from Genesis to Revelation. Thus far, we've gone over eight of the 15 verses that we want to focus on. At this point in our journey, we've gone past the creation, the fall, and flood, and we're working our way through God's unfolding plan of redemption. And we've traveled far enough along the redemptive highway that we've seen that God has inaugurated four covenants with specific people, and we actually refer to the covenant by their names. These four covenants are the Noahic Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, the Abrahamic Covenant, and the Davidic Covenant. R.D., would you like to provide us a brief overview of the four covenants? Sure. Now, three of the four covenants, the Noahic, Abrahamic, and Davidic covenants, are all similar in that they represent times in the history of redemption that God gave unconditional covenants to the recipient, and a part of that covenant was that God used the recipient, Noah, Abraham, or David, to continue the biological line that would ultimately lead to the Messiah, the Anointed One, because that's all the Messiah means is just the Anointed One. Now, the fourth covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, was not biological, but theological. In the Mosaic Covenant, the Lord codified His expectations for how people were to behave with respect to God and with respect to other people into a formal system of law. It's not that before the Mosaic Covenant that God did not have expectations for how people were to worship Him or how people were to treat each other. It's just that before the institution of the Mosaic Covenant, those expectations had not been codified into a formal system of requirements that contained specific prescriptions, proscriptions, and other requirements for what God expected or for how God expected people to behave and how God expected people to treat other people, and how God expected people to worship Him. 
Now, God knew when he instituted the Mosaic Covenant that nobody was going to obey that system of laws perfectly. So at the same time, God also instituted a system of sacrifices that would permit people to atone for the violations of the law that God knew would inevitably come. Now, another feature of the Noahic, Abrahamic, and Davidic covenants was that the blessings that were promised in those three covenants extended beyond just the person who received the covenant or for whom the covenant was named. The blessings that were conveyed through those covenants actually extended to people throughout the entire earth. Of course, in the Noahic covenant, God promised all the people of the earth that he would never again destroy the earth by a flood. And in the Abrahamic and Davidic covenants, God promised that all the families on the earth would be blessed in large measure because it was through those people that the Messiah would ultimately arrive. Blessings that were conveyed to mankind through the Noahic, Abrahamic, and Davidic covenants were by no means limited to just those individuals or even their immediate families. Those blessings extended far and wide beyond just those specific individuals. One other key fact to point out about the Davidic covenant is that it was by the means of this covenant that Jesus, who was the promised Messiah, derived his royal credentials. Because David was the king of Israel when God established this covenant, God committed that one of David's distant descendants would one day possess a kingdom and a throne that would last forever. We now know that this promise has been fulfilled since after Jesus' ascension, he sat down at the right hand of God, where he will rule throughout all eternity. But in our last episode of Anchored by Truth, we didn't stop with the scripture verse that established the Davidic covenant. Our eighth verse had to do with the prophet Daniel being given a vision of the empires that would rule the region of Palestine between the Babylonian exile and the arrival of the Messiah. Yes, when Daniel received his vision of the empires that would govern Palestine between the Babylonian exile and the arrival of the Messiah, The Jewish people were still in exile in Babylon, although at the precise time he received that vision, the time of their exile was drawing to a close, but it had not quite ended yet. We heard the scripture from the book of Daniel in our last episode of Anchored by Truth, and the first scripture that we heard today, which would be the ninth in our list of 15, This scripture from the book of Nehemiah actually comes at a time in history when at least a part of the Jews have been back in their homeland for almost a hundred years. Now, the scripture, as we heard, relates to the account of a Persian king or a Persian emperor named Artaxerxes giving a decree to Nehemiah, who was a Jew, and Artaxerxes told Nehemiah that he was to go home, that is to go back to Jerusalem, and to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. At the time that Nehemiah received this command from the king, Nehemiah actually had presented a request to the king that he be allowed to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild it. Well, the reason that Nehemiah knew that Jerusalem needed to be rebuilt was because he had just received a delegation of Jews who had come to visit him. Again, he's in the capital of the Persian Empire, which is nowhere near Palestine or nowhere near Jerusalem. He asked the delegation, how is our homeland doing? And they tell him basically that the Jewish homeland was still in a state of devastation. So when Nehemiah heard about this, of course he was very distressed. And so he wanted to do something about the situation. So he presented his request to Artaxerxes to be allowed to go back to Jerusalem and to be able to rebuild the walls and the city itself. I think it's important to point out a few elements of this transaction that might not be immediately apparent. First, 
The reason Nehemiah could present his request to Artaxerxes directly was Nehemiah was the cupbearer in Artaxerxes' royal court. Nehemiah was an officer of high rank, his duties including pouring and serving the drinks at the royal table. Because of the constant fear of plots and intrigues such as poisonings, a person would have to have been regarded as extremely trustworthy to hold the position. So, we already have a situation that would have seemingly been very odd. A devout Jew holding one of the most senior positions in the Persian court. Second, the ancient Persian courts were extremely opulent and lavish. Nehemiah would have enjoyed a very comfortable life in such a prominent position. But he was asking the emperor to send him to a city where they still hadn't cleared away the rubble from a war that had occurred 150 years earlier. In other words, Nehemiah was asking to trade in all the comforts you could imagine for a place of desperate poverty, distress, and want. Talk about being faithful to a calling. Yes. And one final point that we need to make is that if you read the text immediately before the one that we listened to at our opening of today's episode, if you read the text before that and then after that, you will find out that Nehemiah was a man of prayer. In fact, before he ever presented his request to be allowed to go back and rebuild the walls and rebuild Jerusalem, Nehemiah had been praying very seriously, very strenuously, very vigorously that he be granted favor in the sight of the king. So one of the things that people need to realize is that these events that occur in biblical history, especially by the great people of faith like Nehemiah, they never occurred in the absence of prayer. So you find out that by reading the book of Nehemiah, that throughout the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah is a man of consistent prayer. Of course, the fact that Nehemiah was a man of consistent prayer was one of the reasons that he was ultimately able to succeed in his quest to restore the walls surrounding Jerusalem. And of course, we need to point out that while walls around cities today are almost unheard of in ancient times, because of the dangers that were pretty much ever-present everywhere, A city that did not have walls was in constant danger of either being raided or overrun or outright destroyed. So before Jerusalem as a city could be restored, the walls around the city had to be restored. And so that was the first task that Nehemiah undertook when he went back to Jerusalem, and he was successful in large measure because he was such a man of consistent prayer. Well... As important as the restoration of Jerusalem was to the post-exilic community, I know that the reason you chose this particular scripture goes beyond just the architectural implications. Yes. I mean, one of the biggest reasons I wanted listeners to investigate this particular scripture more closely is because many scholars view the decree that Artaxerxes gave to Nehemiah as the start of a prophetic time clock that would ultimately end with Jesus' triumphant arrival in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. This prophecy is the so-called prophecy of 70 weeks given to the prophet Daniel. And this is one of the most famous prophecies in the Bible. And in order for our listeners, we don't have time to go into all the details of this prophecy today, But in order for listeners to be able to get a much better understanding of this prophecy, they can consult Dr. Harold Honer's book, The Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ. We think that this particular prophecy is so important that we actually devoted a whole show on an earlier episode of Anchored by Truth, and we called that episode, if I remember correctly, Prophetic Perfection, From Exile to Exaltation that points out that the fulfillment of such a precise prophecy with so many details that only a supernatural God 
who was omniscient, who had perfect wisdom and knowledge, would ever have been able to give that kind of a very precise prophecy that would ultimately come to fulfillment. Again, all this is a great illustration of the unity of Scripture. And we have another example of that remarkable unity in the second of our opening scriptures. These two verses from the book of Malachi are actually the last two verses of the Old Testament. Right. There are only five books of the Old Testament that are primarily devoted to the post-exilic period, which was the period after the Babylonian captivity. There are two books of history, Ezra and Nehemiah, and there are three so-called prophetic books, which are Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Now, the books of Haggai and Zechariah were written very shortly after the Jews began returning to their homeland, which was around the year 520 B.C. or so. Malachi, which is the last book of the Old Testament, was actually written about 80 to 90 years after that, somewhere in the vicinity of 445 B.C. to 435 B.C. So, chronologically speaking, as well as in the order of the texts as they are arranged in the Old Testament, Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. Now, there is some disagreement within Christianity about the books that are called the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha are considered to be canonical by some Christians, but not by others. But at any rate, the book of Malachi is accepted as canonical by everyone. Well, the point of all this is that the verse that we heard from Nehemiah and the one from Malachi are very close to the point that the Old Testament canon was completed. So, once the Old Testament canon was completed, there was a very long period of prophetic silence. And that period of prophetic silence lasted for hundreds of years. And even if you were to include the Apocrypha as books that should be included in the canon, the period of prophetic silence still lasted at least a few hundred years. So, it is remarkable that these last verses that Malachi was inspired to write actually reappear almost 450 years later at the very beginning of the New Testament. You're referring to New Testament verses like Matthew chapter 17 verses 10 through 13, where the Bible says, quote, The disciples ask him, Why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. Unquote. Exactly right. This is another one of those just truly remarkable illustrations of how Scripture unfolds as a single, continuing story. Because in this unfolding, single, continuing story, the last portion of the Old Testament has a direct link to the beginning of the New Testament, despite the fact that a gap of over 400 years had elapsed between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. Let's remember that the United States has existed as a nation for less than 250 years. So the gap that we're talking about between the book of Malachi, which ended the Old Testament, and the book of Matthew, which opened the New Testament, the gap between those two books is 200 years longer than the entire history of the United States. So we just want to be really clear that those last couple of verses in the Old Testament, in the book of Malachi, refer to a prophet 
who would appear almost 450 years later, and that next prophet would appear just before the appearance of the Messiah himself. And the purpose of this coming prophet was to help prepare the way for the Messiah. And these verses from Malachi tell us that this prophet's coming would resemble the prophet Elijah. And after being asked by his disciples, Jesus himself said that prophecy was fulfilled by the appearance of John the Baptist. Again, this is not only an illustration of the unity of Scripture, but also of the amazing prophetic accuracy of the Scripture. Yes, but this verse from Malachi is actually even more remarkable than that. In what way? Well, many of the early church fathers understood that John the Baptist's ministry fulfilled the prophecy from Malachi in the sense that John the Baptist's ministry resembled the ministry of the earlier prophet Elijah. For instance, both John and Elijah lived in the wilderness. They had similar modes of dressing and living. Both John and Elijah confronted the religious establishments of their day. Now, they weren't just rebels. They weren't just out to create trouble for the establishment, as some people think. The reason that John and Elijah both confronted the religious establishments of their day was because the establishments had deviated from the requirements and admonitions of Scripture. Both John the Baptist and Elijah preached a message of repentance to their audiences. And both John and Elijah exhibited very strongly the Spirit of the Lord in how they approached their work. So, as much as these early church fathers recognized these very important parallels between Elijah and John, Many of these church fathers actually saw that there was an additional implication of the verses from Malachi that we heard. These early church fathers saw a connection not only between Malachi and Matthew, if you will, but they saw a connection between Malachi and the final book of the Bible, Revelation. Remember that the Bible tells us that Jesus has not only come to earth once, but that Jesus will also be coming back to earth prior to the final judgment. So if you take a close look at the verse from Malachi, where it refers to the great and terrible day of the Lord, that particular phrase, the great and terrible day of the Lord, is actually a euphemism for the day of judgment. So you're saying that these early church fathers recognized that as important as John the Baptist's role was in Jesus' first coming, John's role was only part one of a two-part drama. Yes. So what is part two? Well, part two of the drama will occur at Jesus' second coming. And so these very early church fathers often noted that the prophet Elijah did not actually die when he left earth. Instead, Elijah's departure from the earth was usually referred to as Elijah having been translated. If you read the book of 2 Kings chapter 2, that chapter says that Elijah was taken to heaven in a chariot of fire drawn by horses of fire on a whirlwind. I'm sure many people would think that that description was intended to be metaphorical or allegorical. Well, I'm sure you're right, but the problem with that is that the entire book of 2 Kings, or 1 Kings from that matter, both of those books are written as very straightforward histories. So, the account of Elijah's translation in 2 Kings gives no hint that that description is intended to be taken as anything other than literal history. So, the Bible records then that Elijah did not die a physical death before he left the earth and was taken to heaven. Elijah is actually one of two people who are recorded in the Bible as never having experienced a physical death before they went to heaven. 
The other biblical figure in the book of Genesis who is talking about having been taken out of the earth without having died is the person who is named as the seventh down the line from Adam, Enoch. So a lot of the church fathers recognize the fact that both Elijah and Enoch are described in the Bible as having left this earth but never having experienced a physical death. So many of these early church fathers saw that the two witnesses that are mentioned in the book of Revelation, chapter 11, they think that those two witnesses are Elijah and Enoch who have come back to earth. Those two witnesses have come back to earth to help prepare the earth for the second coming of Christ. So there's a very distinct parallel between Elijah having conducted his original prophetic ministry, having left the earth, not having experienced a physical death, and John the Baptist having helped prepare the way for Jesus to come as the Messiah, Jesus' first coming, and he came in the spirit of Elijah, but obviously John the Baptist was not Elijah in the flesh. John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah, and John the Baptist experienced a physical death. He was beheaded by Herod. So many of those church fathers saw that while John the Baptist's ministry of preparation for the Messiah was partially fulfilled in John the Baptist's ministry, it was not entirely fulfilled in John the Baptist's ministry. So they believe that the ultimate fulfillment of those verses of Malachi that talk about Elijah returning before the great and terrible day of the Lord, they believe that that is referring to a physical return of the prophet Elijah to earth just before Christ's second coming. So if this view of the early church fathers is correct, the verses that we heard from Malachi today carry us not only from the end of the Old Testament to the beginning of the New Testament, but they also carry us to the end of the New Testament. That is a bit of staggering thought. Just before God closed the Old Testament canon, just before there would be a period of prophetic silence that would last for hundreds of years, God gave Malachi a vision of the most significant remaining events in redemptive history, Christ's first and second coming. It really does make you want to shout for joy or fall on your knees over the magnificence of a God that can do that. I totally agree. So, as we're coming to the close of the first ten of our 15 critical scriptures that we're highlighting to take us from Genesis to Revelation, we are coming to the close of the Old Testament. Now, up to the close of the Old Testament, up to this point in redemptive history, God had regularly sent prophets to his people to instruct them, to correct them, sometimes to criticize them, and often to encourage them. But throughout that entire period, which spans a few thousand years, God had maintained very regular contact with his people through direct earthly representatives. And while the books of the Old Testament contain records left by many of those prophets, by Ezekiel, by Daniel, by Isaiah, by Zechariah, by Malachi, we by no means have records from all of the prophets who lived during those periods of time. For instance, the book of Second Samuel mentions two other prophets named Gad and Nathan who also prophesied during the time of King David. So we know there were many, many, many other prophets that God had sent to his people who just did not leave written works to us that were included in the Old Testament. But as the Old Testament begins to close, there is now going to be a period of prophetic silence that is going to last for hundreds of years. Well, there's another point that we probably should cover about the verse from Malachi and the observation that as it closed the Old Testament, it pointed forward to the New. 
Traditionally, the order of the books in the Bible is not regarded as being inspired. I mean, right? I mean, it's possible that the books of the Old Testament might have been put in a different order. And if they were, Malachi might not have been the last book. So Malachi's closing verses would not then be the last verses in the Old Testament. Am I correct about that? Yes. Neither the order of the books in the Bible or the chapter or verse separations are regarded as being inspired. The doctrine of inspiration only holds to the inspiration of the autographa, the original documents written by the original writers. So it's possible that if someone reorganized the books of the Old Testament, Malachi's verses might not be the last in their appearance within the textual order. But that really wouldn't affect the observation that we've been making about God connecting the Old Testament to the New as he closed out the Old Testament canon. The organizational order of the prophetic books in the Old Testament is roughly chronological. Now, I say roughly because sometimes two prophets who left books included in the Bible prophesied at the same time, such as the prophets Daniel and Ezekiel. So, the prophetic books in the Old Testament are roughly organized in chronological order, but we do have to understand that there was some overlap in some of the books. But the point that I'm making here is that even if there was a reorganization of the books in a textual order, that would not affect how those prophecies had been delivered to the prophets in the actual historical or chronological order. So what you're saying is, is that even if the book of Malachi appeared in a different textual order, the time at which he was given his vision wouldn't have been affected. His prophecy in Malachi 4 would still have been given at the same time during redemptive history. And that's what's important. His prophecy still appeared at a time when God was going to usher in a period of prophetic silence. Yet despite that period of prophetic silence, sometimes termed the intertestimonial period, God's plan of redemption was still unfolding. The empires that the prophet Daniel foresaw still appeared in the exact order in his visions. God still continued to prepare the world for the arrival of the Messiah, despite the fact that he wasn't providing additional books to his revelation. Exactly. And that is the point. The Bible is the record of God unfolding his plan of redemption. And even though the Bible is a record of God's unfolding his plan of redemption, it's not just a record. God actually used his revelation as a part of accomplishing his plan of redemption. And he used the Bible, the Old Testament scriptures, to give his people instructions and for providing prophecies whose fulfillment of that prophecy the people could one day see. But the larger point is that the Bible really is one continuously unfolding story. It's the biggest story of all times. And if we don't understand the overall story, we're going to miss the context into which the individual elements of the story fit. It's very important that we understand the big story so we can see how all the individual elements fit within it. This sounds like a great time for a prayer, because it's so important for all of us to be faithful stewards of the resources that God entrusts to our care. Today, let's listen to a prayer about Christian stewardship. Prayer to be a faithful steward. Almighty, everlasting, and eternal Father, you are the rock, the only sure foundation on which we can build and hope to have our work survive. 
You alone can weave the twisted strands of our lives into a whole cloth that is suitable for your purposes. You alone are the sure and steady hand that preserves us from falling into the snares of the enemy and holds us up when we stumble. Lord, your word rightly tells us that the entire world and all it contains belong to you. It is so easy for us to forget this as we rush to and fro in our daily lives. As we go to our jobs, purchase items at the store, visit banks, and struggle with checkbooks and price tags, we easily forget that none of what passes through our hands truly belongs to us. You own it all, and no amount of striving or pulling can change this fact. Help us, Lord, to release what we cannot hold. Incline our hearts to you so that we treasure the blesser far more than the blessings. Our confidence is in him, and it is in his precious name that we pray and give thanks. Amen. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalcbooks.com, where we're not famous, but our boss is.